God's grace is indeed amazing. By His grace, He creates. By His grace, He redeems. By His grace, He saves. By His grace, He sustains us. And by His grace, He continues to transform us more and more into His likeness. It is the grace of God that is to motivate us, to lead us, to compel us to live lives that are honoring to Him. I think the authors of Scripture had this in mind when they gave instructions in the New Testament for believers, how we are to walk, how we are to live as, as God's people. And we read instructions for Christians in Romans chapter 12. And verse 10 reads this way. It says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another with showing honor. Love one another as believers. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. This is one of the ways in which our lives as believers, as followers of Christ, as Christians are to be different from the rest of the world. We are to consider each other and relate to each other and love one another in some way that resembles the affection and the love that Two brothers who grew up in the same household naturally have for each other. But that being said, we know that, that not every brotherly love is, is worthy of our imitation. Some brothers don't love each other. Some brothers fight one another. Sometimes families fight. Sometimes church families fight. Sometimes we don't act toward one another in the way that God calls us to as His redeemed people who've been saved and transformed by His grace. In fact, as we open God's Word this morning, we will look at a case, we'll look at a family in which two brothers did not love each other in the way that God calls us to love each other. In fact, we'll look at a family in Genesis chapter 25 that was characterized by favoritism and rivalry and deceit. So let me encourage you, let me invite you to join me in God's Word, opening up God's Word to Genesis chapter 25. And I want to continue our practice of reverence for the Word of the Lord as we desire to hear from the Lord. So let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 25. I'll begin reading in verse 27. And there God's Word reads this way. The boys grew up, speaking of Jacob and Esau, the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised 
his birthright. Father, guide us now as we look at your word. Lead us, speak to us, that we might be faithful followers of you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is quite the dramatic story found in God's Word. Really, the details of this particular story are almost unbelievable as we think about these two boys who have aged somewhat since uh, we looked at them last week in the preceding verses. And we'll remember back to the verses just prior to these here in Genesis chapter 25, the passage of Scripture that we looked at last week. We, we read about Isaac and Rebekah, Isaac being the son, the promised son of Abraham and Sarah. And we read about Isaac and Rebekah being childless. First 20 years of their marriage, waiting on the provision of a child from the Lord with no child. So Isaac intercedes and goes before God and asks him to, to show himself faithful, ask him to intervene, and God does intervene. And Rebekah becomes pregnant, not with one boy, but with two boys, and And those particular boys, Jacob and Esau, were born and named in light of the events surrounding their birth. And now they've aged somewhat. Perhaps they're teenagers, maybe young adults, and they're beginning to live up to the circumstances of their naming. Remember that Esau was born and noticeably hairy and red. Esau has become a skillful hunter. Word says, a man of the open country. And he was his father's favorite. His father loved the taste of the game that he would bring home. And Jacob, on the other hand, was a homebody. Liked to stay at home, work in the tents. And as a result, he was his mother's favorite. And perhaps this oracle that we read about last week, the oracle found in verse 23 of the same chapter, when the Lord said to Rebekah, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger, implying that the younger of the twins, Jacob, would, would receive the blessing, that he would receive great blessing and benefit over against his brother Esau. And perhaps that word, that declaration from the Lord influenced Rebekah to love Jacob more than Esau. And so one day, Esau has been out hunting. He's been searching all over in the open country, looking for some game, and he comes up short. He comes home empty-handed, but he is absolutely exhausted. He is wiped out, and upon arrival home, he notices that his brother Jacob is preparing some, some stew. Let me warn you, this is not... The hearty beef stew that you might find in the the Campbell's soup aisle at the grocery store. This is not uh, the kind of stew that would uh, satisfy uh, a taste for meat because this is lentil stew. Lentil is a plant. It's a legume. So I like to think of this as, as a vegetable soup. Personally, I love a good stew, but I don't think that... The stew that I have in mind, and perhaps not the stew that you have in mind, is the stew that Jacob and Esau had in mind. But nevertheless, Esau has been out hunting. He's exhausted. He comes home. He notices that his brother is preparing some stew, and he quickly says, Give me something to eat. Can I have some of that stew? I'm, I'm famished. And Jacob, aware of the situation, pauses and 
seeks to manipulate the situation and use it to his own advantage, saying, first, verse 31, sell me your birthright. Esau says, what good is the birthright to me? I'm, I'm about to die. I'm starving to death. Now, we don't know exactly what the birthright entailed for Jacob and Esau, but we do know that according to the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 17, that the birthright was a double share of the father's inheritance for the firstborn son. So this was kind of a big deal. This was, this was taking the place, assuming the, the place of heir, of the father's estate, the father's inheritance. Not just physical heir, but also spiritual heir in this case, because we know that Abraham, the grandfather of these two boys, had been promised great things by the Lord. The Lord promised to make him into a great nation and provide numerous descendants and provide a, a vast land for them and through them, through their offspring, to, to bless all nations of the earth. And so whatever it was, it was pretty significant, particularly in the eyes of, of Jacob. Esau comes home exhausted, wiped out, famished, and says, sure, you can have my birthright if you'll give me what I want to eat. Now, every now and then I, I use an illustration or I say something to the effect that something was a good deal, a great deal, sort of a, a glimpse of, of what we get in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, four suits for the price of one, a homewrecker burrito from Moe's for a dollar. Those are good deals. This is a terrible deal. This is not a good deal. Esau is not thinking here. Imagine for a moment that you have been out doing something outdoors in the heat and you are absolutely exhausted. You are worn out. Perhaps you've been out running several miles on a hot summer afternoon. Maybe you've been uh, you've just walked 18 holes on the golf course or you've engaged in a, a grueling tennis match or maybe you've been working in the yard to the point of exhaustion and you come home, you come to your door to notice that you've locked yourself out of the house. You can't get back in the house and you are too dehydrated, too hot to even think straight and before you begin to even think about how you can get back in your own house, you've got to have something to drink. You've got to have something to quench your thirst. And so you go to your neighbor's house and you knock on your neighbor's door and sort of stumble through the events of what's taking place, trying to convey the desperation of your situation. Say, can I please just have a, a glass of ice water? Your kind neighbor invites you in. Sure thing, I'd be happy to get you a glass of ice water if you'll give me your brand new car. And you, totally wiped out from whatever it is you've been doing or not thinking about your car, and you sort of say, sure thing, just give me some water. That's the kind of rashness that Esau is being conveyed with here in Genesis chapter 25. He is not thinking straight. He's living for the moment. He's not interested in anything outside of the immediate gratification of his desire for something to eat. Now, neither of these boys is painted in a very positive light here in this story. But Esau is especially painted in a, in a negative light. The negative picture. 
The description here that he was a skillful hunter and a man of the open country is not a condemnation of of hunting, but the way he's being conveyed here, the way he's being described here is, is as if he lived for the moment. He lived for the very best there was in this life. He was wild. He was free. He was ambitious. He was boisterous. He took risks. He was impulsive. But impulsive and sensual living threatens holiness. Impulsive and sensual living, living for the moment without any regard to the future, threatens holiness, threatens devotion to God, threatens a a sense of communion with God and an interest in the things of, of God. Whereas Esau is characterized that way, Jacob is characterized here as much more steady, much more calculated, assessing the situation. And it's interesting that even the parents are described in somewhat similar terms to Jacob and Esau, that Isaac, the father, is to a certain degree described as his son Esau is. He, he liked Esau. He favored Esau because Esau's game satisfied his taste. As Rebecca, more careful, more calculated, the context and syntax of this particular passage conveys that Rebecca probably had more of a preserving love for, for Jacob. Neither of, of these, in fact, none of these family members here, painted in a very positive light. We shouldn't take this to mean that Isaac and Rebecca, as parents, didn't love both of their boys with a parental love, but they certainly favored one against the other. A favoritism that would lead to family feuds down the road. Favoritism in the home that if left unchecked would lead to devastating consequences. A caution for us and our own respective families to to be on guard against such favoritism. Impulsive living would threaten an awareness to God and an awareness to the things of God and awareness to the promises of God and awareness of devotion to God. It would threaten holiness to God and, and preoccupation with gratification compromises appreciation for the things of God. We see here in Genesis chapter 25, verses 29 through 33, that a preoccupation with gratification, immediate gratification, compromises an appreciation for the things of God, things that last, things of of spiritual value. Look back at the text, Genesis 25. Listen to the details of the story once again, picking up in verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick. Let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. We're told that is why he was also called Edom, for Edom means red. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. It's here in the events of the story, as this particular story unfolds, that the skillful hunter Esau becomes the one who's being hunted by a better hunter. His brother Jacob, in the words of of Alan Ross, the cunning hunter fell into a better hunter's trap, becoming prey to his own appetites. Now when Esau said, the birthright doesn't matter to me, I'm about to die, I'm, I'm famished, surely he didn't mean that he was really about to die. He was not on the brink of 
of real life physical death. But what he meant was what we often say when we say, I'm dying for something to eat. I'm I'm dying for hunger. Leading him to desperation and ultimately leading him to compromise and appreciation for the things of God, namely the birthright in, in his own life. And as the rest of the story of the story of Scripture unfolds, that his descendants, the Edomites, were known for these same qualities, known by this same characteristic. The naming of them, the Edomites, or Edom means bread, was to recall this event to mind and how Esau, their ancestor, gave away his inheritance, gave away his his birthright freely for, for a bowl of vegetable soup. I think this story of God's Word is meant to caution us against living a profane life. To warn us against living for the things of this world. The immediate, the right now, instant gratification with, with no real regard for the things of God. And such a life is dishonoring to God. Such a, a life is not a life of faithfulness to God, but it's a life of faithlessness before God. And disregard for the things of God is faithlessness. Disregard for the things of God, as Esau is conveyed right here in Genesis chapter 25, disregard for the things of God is, is faithlessness. Look at the final verse once again, verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. So hasty and Sort of to the point, Jacob got what he wanted. He, he wanted the birthright. One of the promise of the birthright, the promise of the place of physical and spiritual heir. And once he got that, gave Esau what he wanted. Some bread and some soup. Esau ate to his fill, got up, and left. And neither of these boys, neither of these sons are painted positively here. Neither of them are people of integrity here in this story that we are called to imitate. Neither of them are characterized by brotherly love for the other. But I think the the primary point of this passage of Scripture in the context of God's Word is that the faithful pursue God and the things of God with integrity that glorifies God. The faithful people of God are called to pursue God and the things of God with integrity that glorifies God. On one hand, Esau was was not interested at all with the things of God. He was interested in immediate gratification, instant gratification. And on another hand, Jacob, though he was interested in the things of God, did not approach it with integrity. So for us as believers, people of faith, followers of Christ, who believe the words of Scripture, how do we move this from the theoretical to the practical in our own lives as followers of Christ? And I think firstly, we are called to seek Things of spiritual value. Seek things of of spiritual value. Don't live for the moment, but live for God and the things of God. Remember Jesus teaching the crowds and warning them against the foolishness of, of worrying, of anxiety. He says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. As well, seek things of spiritual value. And as we seek the things of God, things of of spiritual value, then we will be less and less inclined to fall into the trap of living for the moment. But still we are called to reject momentary pleasures 
that ignore God. Seek things of spiritual value and reject momentary pleasures that ignore God. That don't look to, to God. That take God out of the picture. Simply look, think, look at things for the here and now. Esau was characterized this way. Living for the moment. Living for the pleasure of the day with no real regard to the lasting things of God. And I think the rest of us today are often inclined to go down that same path. To live for the moment with no real regard for the things of God. Once again, recently in the news, we've been reminded how people of faith, people of real faith in the God of Scripture, throw away their marriage, throw away their family, throw away so much for the pursuit of momentary pleasure. Our sin nature blinds us to things of God and lasting things of God, things of spiritual value that that go on for eternity. Sinfulness, whatever it may be, be it immorality, be it greed, be it the pursuit of worldly success, these things are hindrances to fixing our eyes on the one who lasts, the one who ultimately satisfies, for none of these things offer lasting satisfaction. No momentary pleasure in this life offers lasting satisfaction. Nothing satisfies like like knowing Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of the world, the author of life and the bread of life, the living water, the everlasting King, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who offers us salvation. He is the one who satisfies. He is the one who lasts. So in our pursuits, let's pursue Him. Let's pursue the God who is faithful and true. Seek things of spiritual value. Reject momentary pleasures that ignore God. And let's pursue the God who is faithful and true. For nothing satisfies like Him. There is no joy in life like the joy of knowing and walking by faith in Jesus Christ. And as we continue to think about the truths of this text. And what it looks like for us to to be people of faith who pursue God and the things of God. In a way that honors and glorifies God. I want to invite two young men to to join me in conversation up here to help us think through that truth. So Jordan, if you and Matthew would come on up and join me on the stage here, take a stool and let us, let us talk with you and hear from you about some of these things. Many of you know Jordan, many of you know Matthew. I'm going to move these flowers just for the sake of line of sight here. And, but Jordan and Hannah Self are members of, of Meadowbrook Baptist Church and uh, Jordan has and, and Hannah have uh, received a call from the Lord to engage in missions. They have been serving the Lord through CAM International for several years now in Guatemala. They are home for several months, and we have opportunity to, to hear from him for a few minutes. And then also uh, Matthew Moore is one uh, of our own as well. You know Matthew. Matthew is a college student uh, at Auburn University, a member of our church, and Matthew has given up the last two summers uh, to serve overseas in Asia uh, for the sake of spreading the gospel. So uh, allow me to, to uh, pick your brains for just a moment and your experience and apply some of these truths to our own lives here at Meadowbrook. And our passage of scripture this morning, guys, reminds us, uh, cautions us against um, 
pursuing worldly things, worldly pursuits, worldly pleasures at the expense of the things of God. And when I think about your lives, I certainly uh, see lives of sacrifice. I look at you and I, I think that both of you have given up uh, that pursuit, the pursuit of worldly ambitions and worldly success and personal preferences even, perhaps to a certain extent, in order uh, to take a message uh, somewhere else into another context. So if you would, beginning with you, Jordan, share with us a little bit about that journey, uh, that sacrifice in your life, uh, that decision, how you came to that decision in your life. Well, I, was, I grew up in Bolivia as a missionary kid, um, but when I came back to the United States, I didn't want to be a missionary. And I really wanted to go to the University of Auburn, and so I was heading over there. But I got a challenge from my father. And he says, Jordan, I want you to fast and pray about this decision. Because this is a crucial time in your life on doing what God wants you to do or what you want to do. And so I did. And God just kind of shut all those doors down and opened the doors to uh, Southeastern Bible College. And I went into um, the ministry as a youth pastor. And it was really one morning I was just really just you know thinking about what God wants me to do and as I was praying and reading in his word I just challenged God I said here am I send me I'll do whatever you want me to do and that's a kind of a dangerous prayer in a good way because if you do that and you're serious about that he's going to flip your whole world upside down and so the things that I wanted to do started slowly disappearing And what he wanted me to do uh, started increasing in my life. And so he put a desire in our heart for missionary kids and to go to the foreign field. And so it was just this whole process of dying to myself and living for him that that changed my world. And um, to sacrifice whatever he wants me to sacrifice, uh, whether it be family or the lifestyle here or whatever it is, that's kind of our journey of, of where he brought us. Yeah, thank you, Jordan. Thanks for sharing. And same question to you, uh, Matthew. Tell us a little bit about uh, your journey coming to, de- to a decision to sacrifice some things here for the sake of, of going elsewhere to follow God's uh, call in your life. Um, there's, there's this new book out, maybe not that new. It's called Good to Great. Um, it's a business leadership book and some people did research on some of um, some popular companies in America that made a comeback that were we're sinking we're losing money we're losing staff we're under bad leadership and it studied how how do they turn around how do they take it take it from good or maybe even bad to great um, and I think that that's a, a good example of kind of what um, that journey has been like in my life because I was um, I was on a path to good. I was on a path to good that I had chosen that um, that everyone else would have said, "Yeah, that's a good thing." Um, but God gives us opportunities to lay down what's good and to accept what's great. Um, things that He chooses for us that are great. Um, but the trick is, before you accept the great thing. You have to lay down the good thing. And sometimes it's hard to let a good thing go. But 
on, on, the, on the greater side of things, I can say that it was worth it. It was worth that decision laying down my dreams that were good for his dream that's great. Good. Thank you for sharing that. And, uh, next question. Uh, we've Obviously, this morning, as we looked at God's word, we've uh, continued to talk about sort of the, the struggle that we all face here as we're... Uh, there's a, a sin, sinful bent in all of us, we know that, toward uh, things of ourselves, toward selfishness and pride, and we all struggle with sort of, uh, you know, taking ownership of our own lives. Uh, perhaps uh, all of us, to a certain extent, struggle with sinful temptation, temptations uh, or giving in to sinful temptations. So uh, what would each of you say this morning to someone who is with us today that is struggling to lay aside worldly pursuits, uh, be they uh, personal success, ambition, drive, uh, or perhaps even uh, struggling with secret sin? Well, you have to die to yourself every day and live for Christ. (coughs) And when you do want to do what you want to do, you start making bad decisions or selfish decisions that don't advance the kingdom of God. And so every day you have to examine your life. What do I need to do to sacrifice so that um, I can advance the kingdom of God? And we have to examine our lives not just on how we treat one another, but even the secret sin that we don't think that people realize that we have. But God knows. And so we can come to church, we can go be around our friends and have this mask on, um, but that secret sin that's inside you is destroying you. In the Bible it talks about, in James it talks about, you can't be a double-minded man. And in Revelation it talks about if you're neutral, if you're riding the fence, if, if, if you're there, Jesus says, I'll spew you out of my mouth. And so it's making a decision to live for him every day and dying to the self. And so uh, David in the Psalms talks about, search me, O God, and try me and know the hidden parts of myself. And I confess that to you. And so for getting all those things out there and living for Christ, that's where you'll see true victory in your life and those things of this world will die. Um, Having people, mentors, accountability partners in your life is key also. Um, I teach my students and the missionary kids is you need a Paul in your life, you need a Barnabas in your life, and you need a Timothy in your life. A Paul is someone that is a mentor to you that you can learn from and has a lot of experience and knowledge. A Barnabas someone on your level that you can be accountable with and to encourage one another. And then a Timothy in your life, someone who you're investing your life into. And that's the discipleship cycle. 2 Timothy 2, 2. The things you've heard from me, Paul is talking to Timothy, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so you have that cycle uh, that continues. But when you have that, and then the power of the Holy Spirit, that will kill that flesh, and then you can live uh, free in Christ. Thank you, Jordan. Same question to you, uh, Matthew. What would you say to someone uh, this morning that perhaps is uh, experiencing that lure to worldly things and, and but feel, feeling led to give up uh, some of those things for the sake of the Lord? Yeah, um, one particular verse comes to my mind, and um, when I discovered it, you know, I, I might have read it before, but it's one of those times where I was, I was reading through a passage, and something just stuck out at me, and it just like, it, it struck me, uh, and it was Proverbs twenty three twenty six, 
And he says, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes delight in my ways. And so I think along this journey that, that I've been on um, with some things I've sacrificed, some things that I'm deciding if I am willing to sacrifice, then I've really gone back to that first because it goes back to whether or not my heart really wants to admit that it's a problem or admit that it's a struggle. Um, I think God delights in when we even come to him and say, you know what, God, I'm, I'm frustrated with you. I'm angry with you. I don't see why I have to give this up. I don't see why this is a problem in my life. I think that's what he means when he says, give me your heart, even when it's dirty and messy. Mm. But the beautiful thing about that verse is that when we trade away the things in our life that we think are good, they're really just things that satisfy or that, that, that we, we, we can just accept. I don't know. And when we give those up, he, he trades it for things we are going to delight in. Things we're going to delight in, enjoy, treasure. And those are things we can never really see, never really taste or touch until we, we give him our heart. Good word. Let's talk for just a moment about family and the importance of family. We're in a present message series entitled Family Feuds. Uh, We've looked at uh, a family this morning, a fairly dysfunctional family that had all sorts of of issues and challenges and problems. Nevertheless, names like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Esau, Rebecca, Sarah, names that that we consider heroes in the faith. So tell us just uh, quickly... How important is family uh, in your own lives? Um, How important is family support and prayers as you pursue faithfulness uh, to God? Well, for me, family is essential. Um, When we decided to go on the mission field, it wasn't just me going on the mission field and my wife and my kids staying here. Actually, one of a relative of, of Hannah's said, so, uh, how many times are you going to come back off the mission field to visit Hannah and the kids? I'm like, no, we're all going together. <laughs> we're all going on the mission field together. You know, um, so with, without them, I probably wouldn't have a ministry. You know, and I think that's kind of how uh, God designed that is, you know, my weaknesses are her strengths and her strengths are my weaknesses. And we learn from each other and, and, and she, see, she sees things that I can't see. Um, my kids teach me things um, that I would probably never learn. And so it's essential with that family uh, as a unity, uh, to have unity in that, um, um, to relate to people. And they're watching our lives also on how we relate to one another. And so um, just striving, once again, not perfect, and we have a long ways to go, uh, but just striving for that unity um, so that we can live that out in front of our friends and family. Because uh, we might have family that might not even know the Lord, but if we're living that and being that godly testimony, that maybe that will win them over to Christ. Um, I'm sure you guys are all familiar with the, the concept that as you get older, your parents get smarter. <laughs> you guys know about that? Well, I'm 21 years old, and I think that is a very true thing. Um, yeah, my family is very important, um, foundational, just like Jordan said. Um, and as as kind of the uh, the goal of my life has shifted, the, the path that I'm on has shifted. 
my family's been supportive and encouraging every step of the way from uh, my parents to my brother to his fiance and it, it's just uh, my sister Holly um, it's really cool to to just see how God has provided that for me um, because I have friends um, really dear friends whose families are not in that boat whose families are against them following Jesus whose families um, you know even spread rumors about them to other family members how they're not doing well they're they're crazy they're whatever um, and it, it makes me so thankful for a family that's supportive um, and I just want to extend that to this family at Meadowbrook um, sometimes when you're involved in a good thing all the time you don't realize it's a good thing until maybe you step away and and you come back and you realize wow this is this is amazing because the same story is true. I have friends from churches who aren't supportive, who don't understand why they want to go overseas to countries, risk their life, give away their, their dream or, or a, a good life in America. Um, and so I just want to say thank you to all of you guys for um, your prayer support, your financial support, your um, encouraging emails and letters and words when when I when I come back here it's always a joy to come back uh, through these doors and enter your homes and have conversations with you so um, I think that support is vital all right final question and uh, we'll let either one of you or both of you whoever feels led to to tackle this one but how how would you all um, encourage us as a church to be more faithful to the always faithful God that we serve well, I think that being faithful to God or being faithful in ministry, you have to be faithful in your relationship to God. And I think it goes back to dying to your sin and dying to your flesh so that you can see your church and be a part of the change in your own church. But if, if you're just living a mediocre Christian life or a non-productive life or just going through the motions, then you can't be a part of that change. Um, in the church, in the body of Christ. And so it, it really all starts with you. Um, I remember when I was younger, I'd pray for revival in our youth group or in, you know, wherever I was at. And we'd just pray, like, God, why aren't you doing anything? And, and I think God wants us to pray and come to him and, and talk about these things. But it has to start with me first. And that was the conviction that was brought upon me is, all right, what are you doing, Jordan? Where are you being the example? before you can see something greater. And so if we're faithful in the smaller things, then he'll make us ruler over many things. Yeah, yeah very good. Thank you, guys. Thank you all so much for sharing with us and allowing us to hear some of your journey and challenging us from God's Word as well. And let me uh, voice a prayer over you guys and a, a prayer as we transition now into uh, our time of response. Father, we do uh, love you, and we uh, desire to praise you and to live for you. We desire to live lives of faithfulness to you because you are a God who uh, has been faithful to us, a God who loves us and cares for us, and Lord has extended incredible saving grace to us by way of the cross. And Father, help us never to lose sight of that. And I thank you for Jordan and for Hannah, for Solomon and for Grace. Lord, I thank you for Matthew and I thank you, uh, Lord, for the tremendous work that you have done and are doing in each of their lives. And Father, uh, may you continue to remind us to pray for uh, them, to pray for each other, uh, Lord, to, to be known as your church, a uh, church that cares for one another, that, 
shows brotherly love and affection to each other. It honors one another by lifting each other up to you. Father, guide us now as we uh, stand and sing to you, for you are worthy uh, of our praise today and always. And it's in Christ's name we pray and ask these things. Amen.